Psalm 79 is a biblical response to God's judgment. A biblical response to God's judgment. Now, the background of this psalm is the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Following the destruction of Jerusalem, the people were taken into captivity. Now, we should understand that both the destruction and captivity were foretold by God. Repeatedly, he warned Israel to repent of their spiritual harlotry, their worshiping of, of, of other gods, i.e. idols, before it was too late. Nonetheless, false prophets arose who mocked God and said that the city would never fall and the people would never go into captivity. And despite their assurance, God leveled judgment upon the kingdom of Judah. And this psalm is written by the survivors still living in the destroyed remnants of Jerusalem. And the question is raised, how does one rightly or biblically respond to God's judgment? And so this psalm breaks into three parts. We see the problem in verses 1 through 4. We see the petition in verses 5 through 12. And we see the praise in verse 13. So as we consider the proper response or the biblical response to God's judgment, let's begin by understanding the problem. Verse 1 through 4. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. Now, right from the outset in verse 1, the crisis and the setting of this psalm is established. Oh God, now notice we the, the psalmist speaks directly to the mighty one, to Elohim. And I think it's interesting here that he does not address him as Yahweh. And I believe that's important because they understand that God's judgment has fallen and that the relationship between God and his servant is broken. And then he informs God, as if God needs to be informed, that the nations, the Gentiles have come into his inheritance. Now, the word inheritance here does not refer to the people here, but to the land of Israel. And you can cross-reference that back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 21. And then we're told the temple has been defiled and Jerusalem is in ruins. The idea here is that the temple is no longer holy. It's no longer separated unto God. Why? Because it's been intruded upon by unclean Gentiles. Furthermore, God's servants are dead. The word servants here refers to the godly ones or those who are still loyal to the covenant. Most likely these were the priests. Uh, who had remained loyal to God, and they're dead, and they're laying there out in the open. Their corpses are on the ground. The birds are picking at their flesh. They're unburied. And again, this fulfills the curse of Deuteronomy 28 and verse 26, which says, Your carcasses will be food to all birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Now, for the Jewish people, this is especially offensive because the burial of a dead body is a godly duty. 
It's a godly duty because the body is made in the image and likeness of God. And so this is complete and utter desecration of that which is made in God's image. And again, interesting, the the interplay here, because we have the physical temple destroyed, but we also have the spiritual temple. Remember, the body is the spiritual temple of God, and that is now destroyed. Now, normally, the priest could not touch dead bodies, but in the case of their relatives, they were allowed to do so in order to assure proper interment. And that's uh, covered in Leviticus 21, 1 to 3. But uh, look at the statement in verse 3. Jerusalem is drenched in blood like water. Uh, Again, it gives you this idea that, you know, blood is everywhere, okay? You know, as if a rainstorm had come through and you see the puddles of water everywhere. Well, there's puddles of blood everywhere. And there's no one to bury the dead. And the massive destruction here evokes taunts from Israel's quote-unquote neighbors. You know, we can't help but think of Psalm 44. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the heads among the people. But again, the fact that Israel's being mocked, being taunted, being scorned by the nations because of their disobedience, because of God's judgment, fulfills the curse of Deuteronomy 28.37, which says, You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the peoples, where the Lord drives you. Now, how does the psalmist deal with God's punishment? And again, this comes back to our theme, a biblical response to God's judgment. A biblical response to God's judgment. Let's look at verses 5 through 12. And what we're going to see here is a petition. A petition. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight. Vengeance for the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Now in these verses, verses 5 through 12, yes, there's a petition, but there's actually several parts, three parts to this petition. First, in verses 5 through 7, there is a prayer for vindication. A prayer for vindication. Then, there is a prayer for forgiveness in verses 8 through 9. And finally, a prayer for reprisal in verses 10 through 12. A prayer for vindication, prayer for forgiveness, prayer for reprisal. Now, when you want to ask yourself, after seeing God's judgment, perhaps even experiencing God's judgment, what is your biblical response? Your biblical response is to fall on your face and pray. Pray for vindication, pray for forgiveness, pray for reprisal. Now let's work our way through verses 5 through 12. And right from the outset, we have to notice here that the psalmist does not blame God. He does not believe that God has removed his hand from his people. Instead, he sees that God's hand is there. But instead of hand of fellowship, it is a hand of judgment. Okay? You know, so often when God's judgment comes into our lives, 
we get this strange view of God as if somehow God has forgotten us or God is is not fair with us or God has just altogether left us. You know, whatever we have come up with, a way of rationalizing away God's judgment as if God has seemingly uh, removed himself. The reality is God's hand is still very much there. Okay, God's presence is still very much there, just not in the way you would want it to be. Now, the psalmist also here does not become cynical. He does not become skeptical. He does not indulge in practical atheism. So many times as believers, we are atheistic. You say, well, how is that? Well, something comes into your life, some trial, some tribulation, uh, perhaps even judgment of God, and right away our faith is challenged. How could God let that happen? All of a sudden, you've just become an atheist. Boy, my my faith was just really, really rocked that I even began to question whether God exists. Well, for all practical intent and purpose, you're acting as an atheist. But that is not what the psalmist does here. He doesn't say God is dead. You know, that's a popular theology today that God is dead. You know, that's a nice way to get you off the hook. When bad things happen, well, it's not because I did anything and because God's judging me, because ultimately God is dead. So life is what it is. What a horrible view. He does not reevaluate his theology, as so many do today. Well, God didn't come through for me the way I thought he should. God isn't who I think he ought to be. I really don't think we've looked at the Bible correctly, and we need to reinterpret who God is. He doesn't do that. He sees Israel's destruction for what it is, the consequence of breaking God's moral law, thumbing the nose at God's authority. And folks, that's what we need to do is we begin to approach God in prayer, in petition, as a response to his judgment. We got we to take ownership for what it is. This has come into my life because... I thumbed my nose at God's authority. I broke God's moral law. Now, in verse 5, he asks, how long will God's anger last? Will it last forever? And will his jealousy burn like fire? And I think, again, the wordplay here is interesting. We have a parallelism between his anger and his jealousy. And, And, you know, again, anger and jealousy are not always sinful. Now, most of the time with us, anger and jealousy is unjust. Uh, because it's motivated by our flesh. But in God's sense, his anger is justified because he's angry with what? Sin. And he's jealous, why? Because he wants, he desires, he created us so that we would worship him, not someone else. Also, the word anger, Hebrew word for anger can denote the idea of fire. Okay, so often we see God's anger denoted as he is a consuming fire. There's smoke coming from his nostrils. And we have that play here with his jealousy. It's burning within him like a fire. See, the covenant that Yahweh made with his people is broken. And so he is jealous. And again, we have to remember what that covenant is. That covenant is a threshold covenant. And as a threshold covenant, it's a marriage covenant. Yahweh took Israel as his bride. Now, when did that happen? When was that covenant made? Made at the first Passover celebrated in Egypt. On that night, God took Yahweh as his bride. Uh, Jeremiah is very clear about that when he's talking about the new covenant. Not the covenant that they broke with me, that they, that they had made with me 
when they were in Egypt. Now, that's very important because so often we hear people talk about, oh, they broke the covenant and that Mosaic covenant that they broke has been done away. Well, first of all, nowhere in the Bible does it say the Mosaic covenant's been done away. Uh, and that is not the covenant that they broke that caused God's anger to be against them. It was the marriage covenant, the threshold covenant that he made with them in Egypt. And they broke it by committing spiritual harlotry or spiritual adultery, worshiping other gods. He's jealous because of that very reason. And so listen to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. And we'll see when we read this that God is totally just in his anger and jealousy. You will not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you lest the anger of the Lord be, of your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Now, I don't know that you can make it any plainer than that. That is as, is as plain as the nose on your face. Do not worship other gods. That's the condition, okay? But if you do, God's going to be jealous and he's going to be angry. And his anger is going to be aroused and you're going to be destroyed. And that's exactly what we see here in 586 B.C. The psalmist now petitions and treats God to turn his wrath, turn his burning anger from Israel to the pagan nations or to the Gentiles. And again, this is uh, verse 6. Those who do not know you, those who have not received your word. He's praying, listen, God, they deserve your wrath. Why? because they don't fulfill your first commandment. They have other gods. Now, again, it's, it's laughable in one sense that, you know, Israel's destroyed because they worship these other gods, and now the psalmist is praying, God, destroy those pagan nations because they worship other gods. They've denied you. They've destroyed your people. They have devoured or literally eaten up Jacob and laid waste to your dwelling place. And that word laid waste has the idea of devastation and ravaging. Now, after the judgment of the Gentiles, the psalmist now asked the Lord to change his relationship with Israel. Now, again, we have this prayer for vindication. You know, when God's judgment comes into our life, we need to understand that he will use outside forces to bring that judgment upon us. We see it all through the history of the Old Testament that every time Israel turned from God, God raised up other nations uh, to, to plague them, uh, to judge them. And so when we are facing God's judgment, there is first and foremost a, a, a proper response on our part, a biblical response to pray for vindication. Now, again, that's on the basis that we're owning up to what God, what, why this judgment has come. He's not praying for vindication because, oh God, you weren't fair, or oh God, they weren't fair to us. He's, he's taking stock. Listen, we're in this position because of your judgment. However, God, vindicate us. Don't leave us where we're at, okay? And that's a proper biblical response. You own it, you, 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 you acknowledge God's judgment for what it is, and your prayer, your first and foremost part of your prayer is, Lord, vindicate us. Don't leave us where we're at. Don't let the enemy continue to go on making a mockery of us because ultimately we bear your name. But now we come to the 
next part of the uh, petition, which is the prayer for uh, forgiveness. That's where we're coming to next. And so he says here, God, do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers. Now, this is an interesting phraseology because the term can be translated as do, do not remember our former iniquities, our past sins. And so again, there, there's a debate as to which is the best means of translating this. Uh, certainly their forefathers had since and had been going on for generations. But I think that it's safe to say we, we could translate this as their former iniquities. Here's the psalmist, a survivor of God's judgment, uh, part of the priestly order. He's a son of Asaph, according to the superscription. And he's acknowledging that his generation has sinned, and that's the result of uh, God's judgment. The, this generation, he's saying, we bear the consequence of this rebellion. And then, Lord, don't only forgive our sins, but restore your compassions, your tender mercies, back to us because we have been brought very low. That brought very low literally means, you've God, you have us on our backs. And it's a unique term because it's the idea that there's been a battle, God has defeated his enemy, and in this case, his enemy is his people because they've abandoned him, they've, they've worshipped other gods, and he now has his back, or he has them on their backs, on the ground, his sword is drawn, and he's about to deliver the death blow. Lord, forgive us of our sins, and be merciful to us. And again, that's what we see at the heart of this request, forgiveness and mercy. And that's what we need to do as we respond biblically to God's judgment. And so he prays to the God of our salvation. Uh, he's praying for an answer, uh, because not only because they've been brought low, but because of the praise or the glory of God's name. God, act on our behalf, vindicate your name, because now the nations are blaspheming you. And again, we see two things here in verse 7. He's crying out for deliverance or forgiveness and atonement for sins. Now, the verb deliver there in verse 7 literally means snatch us out of the mouth of, an, of the animal. You have that picture of a prey in the animal's mouth. Snatch us out of the animal's mouth. He wants Israel to be pulled out of the devouring crunch of the enemy. Remember, he previously said, they are devouring us. And then, so we have deliver, but then we have the word forgive, which is the Hebrew term kafar, the covering, with the same idea of the covering on the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. This is the word, same word for atonement or propitiation. And he's asking that God's people's sins would be removed or be covered by God. Now, this tells us here that the Old Testament certainly understood the means of grace and mercy and forgiveness and deliverance. You know, salvation from day one, from the day of the fall, has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah alone. Now, they may not have specifically known the Messiah's name, but they knew he was the Messiah. And that's what we see they're praying for here. God, deliver us uh, and forgive us. Give us salvation. Give us atonement. Uh, and that's what, again, salvation is, is really all about. It's deliverance from our enemy. It's deliverance from sin. It's deliverance from God's wrath. 
And this cry of salvation for us has been fulfilled in Christ. We know from 1 Peter 5a that he snatches us from the devil who seeks us like a roaring lion. And from Romans 3.25, he covers our sins with his atoning blood. Now we're going to pause here and we'll pick up with the rest of this petition and the praise uh, when we continue next time. So to recap, as we consider a biblical response to God's judgment, first, we have to note the problem. We have to acknowledge this is God's judgment and God is judging because we have sinned. We have failed God. We have broken his moral law. We have thumbed our nose at his authority. And then we have to begin with a petition. And that petition has three parts. We saw part one. There has to be a prayer. Part of that prayer has to be for vindication. God, don't abandon us. God, take up our cause. And then there has to be a prayer for forgiveness. With that, again, that acknowledgement of sin. And then, Lord, save us. Lord, snatch us out of the mouth of the lion and then atone for us. Cover, use your son's blood to cover our sin so that we can be restored. So next time we'll continue with verses 5 through 12 with the petition. We'll see the prayer for reprisal and then we'll see verse 13. We'll look at the praise for God's response. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, your son and our savior. And Father, we thank you that that blood has atoned for our sin. Father, we acknowledge your holiness. We acknowledge your mightiness. And uh, Father, even as we read this psalm, we see your mighty hand. Uh, Father, your mighty hand often is a hand of blessing. But in times of sin, your mighty hand is a hand of judgment. And Father, I ask and pray that you would forgive us of our sin. I pray that, Lord, that uh, we might own our sin, that we might confess our sin. We know that who you love, you chasten. You send judgment because you love us. And so, Father, when that judgment comes, I pray that, uh, Lord, we would acknowledge it for what it is. We would acknowledge our responsibility. We would not question you or doubt you. We would not uh, try to rationalize your way, but that we would own it. And then, Father, that we would petition you, that we might come and pray, Lord, vindicate us. Father, when you judge us, don't leave us in that judgment, but rescue us. And Father, those who you've used to judge us, Father, don't let them go along and continue to mock and blaspheme your name. And then, Father, as we have prayed already, forgive us. Father, I thank you for the assurance of deliverance that you give us here in this psalm, that when your people cry out, you will hear and you will deliver, you will cover, and you will remember their sin no more. We give you the thanks, we give you the praise and the glory for that great and precious promise. And we pray these things and say, amen.